Worldwide KFUO now presents St. Paul's Lutheran Church Bible Class in De Pere, Missouri. Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here. We welcome not only those who are with us here in the gymnasium today, but also those who are listening over KFUO, 8.50 a.m. and worldwide, kfuo.org. For those that are in the gymnasium here, we have sheets over on the side with the scripture lessons that we'll be looking at today and the collect. Uh, for those new to the class, what we've been doing for a few months now really in this class is taking a look at the scripture lessons that are assigned for the coming Sunday. So the scripture lessons that we'll be looking at next week in church and have in our worship services are the ones that we studied this week and provides a little bit of a preview, I guess you'd say, for our worship next week. With that then, let's begin with the word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as this church year draws to an end, we look forward with anticipation to the day your Son will return to take his bride, the church, to be with him in the everlasting marriage feast that will have no end. We ask your blessing upon us this day and your Holy Spirit's guidance as we continue to look at your word. We pray your Holy Spirit will work through that word both to increase our knowledge and also our understanding of your will for us as your children living in these latter days. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, uh, we're going to be looking, as I said, at the lessons for next Sunday, which is already the last Sunday in the church year. So the two Sundays from today, we'll start a new church year. It'll be the first Sunday in Advent. So as the church year, the church calendar year draws to a close, as you've probably been noticing, the lessons in our worship services are preparing us for the eventual end of time as we know it here on this earth and our lives here on this earth, uh, pointing us ahead to the time when Christ will return. And we certainly are going to see that emphasis in the lessons that we'll be looking at for next Sunday. On the sheet that we have, first of all, you'll notice the collect for the day. And as I always say, that's a good place to begin uh, when you come into church. It's a short prayer, usually right before the scripture readings, that, as its name implies, collects the theme uh, for the day. And so it gives us a good clue as to what we might be looking for in the scripture lessons. So let's take a look at that collect of the day for next Sunday. Eternal God, merciful Father, you have appointed your Son as judge of the living and the dead. Enable us to wait for the day of his return with our eyes fixed on the kingdom prepared for your own from the foundation of the world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. So we see right away in that first line, that you have appointed your son as judge. And that is certainly what we're going to see in the gospel lesson from Matthew 25, also the Old Testament lesson from Ezekiel. And notice there, what are we asking for? Right after we say that he is appointed as the judge, we are asking there, enable us to wait for the day of his return, but not just wait in any old fashion, but wait with our eyes fixed on the kingdom prepared for your own from the foundation of the world. 
that from the foundation of the world is actually a direct quote from the gospel lesson for today, Matthew 25. So we right away uh, get the, the sense, the, the idea here that we're going to be, the emphasis will be on the day when Christ returns. And we see that clearly articulated in the Collect. Help us wait for that day with our eyes fixed on that kingdom, which has been prepared since the foundation of the world. Okay? So with that as sort of, a, again, an introduction or an entree into the lessons, first of all, let's take a look at Ezekiel, and it's chapter 34. And we'll be looking at, uh, it's kind of chopped up a bit, but verses 11 through 16 and 20 through 24. Now, Ezekiel was written, uh, timing-wise, in fact, it kind of spans the time that the southern kingdom was taken over, that Jerusalem fell, and the Babylonians uh, being used by God to bring judgment upon his people in 586 come and level the southern kingdom, but especially Jerusalem is what fell in, in 586. The temple is destroyed. Many of the best and brightest uh, are carted off into captivity in Babylon. And the message that we have here from Ezekiel is going to be one of hope and restoration. We're going to see God depicted as a shepherd who comes and gathers his people together. Now, that had an immediate fulfillment back in those days when uh, God raised up Cyrus, the uh, Persian emperor who overtook the Babylonians, signed an edict of Cyrus, and allowed God's people to come back home to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. So there's an immediate fulfillment there, but ultimately we will see, especially when it starts talking about David, we will see the ultimate fulfillment, of course, is on the day that Christ shall return. Now I wanted to start, we're starting at verse 11 in our scripture lesson for next Sunday, but I think it's important to note what's happening in verses 1 through 10 of Ezekiel 34. And God is literally taking to task here the shepherds of God's people. Those would be the political leaders as well as the religious leaders. Instead of leading, feeding, and caring for the flock of God's people, he uh, literally lashes out at them for exploiting God's people, for, in effect, uh, devouring the sheep instead of protecting them and leading them. And as a result, God's people were scattered. Okay? So if you have a Bible, let's just read real quickly through uh, verses 1 through 10 in Ezekiel 34, just to get a sense of this or get a flavor of this. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, it's uh, a self-designation for Ezekiel. It's used, I think, about uh, 80-some times in the book. Prophesy, notice, against the shepherds of Israel. So Ezekiel, who is, uh, might say, clergy himself, is a, is a priest and is, set, is told here by God, prophesy against the shepherds of God's people. Okay? Um, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, 
Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So you get the, you get the clear indication here that the shepherds themselves not only were, it's not that they were lazy or lackadaisical, they were in fact feeding off the sheep themselves. They were exploiting the sheep. And to the point where, notice, God still calls them my sheep. And they've been scattered. Uh, it's just, again, an image to show how, how far things had descended, spiritually speaking. Okay, Let's finish this off. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they might not be food for them. Pretty dramatic. Uh, literally, God says there that in that last verse, I'm going to take my sheep back out from the mouths of the shepherds. It's like the shepherds, again, are devouring these sheep. Okay? Now, modern-day application. Can you think of any? Who do we think of as shepherds today? <laughs> the pastors, that's right. So, so uh, what would be a situation, a similar situation today, where shepherds would be exploiting the sheep as their pastors? What do you think? Can you think of how that, how, what would we see happening, or how would that work out today? All right, TV evangelists were mentioned, and in a sense of, uh, the money that is, uh, is uh, asked for, and we see uh, at times some rather lavish lifestyles on the part of some of them. We've seen in the past that idea that more exploiting the, the, the people. Okay? How about in a, this would never happen in an LCMS congregation, right? How, how might we see it happen? Pastor becomes, let me ask you this. In the LCMS, do you think we have a high regard or a low regard for the office of the pastoral ministry? High regard. I, I, think, that's, I think that's still the case. And uh, people begin to be very complimentary of the pastor, um, sometimes deservedly, sometimes not, but still very complimentary of the pastor. And if the pastor is not careful, what can he begin to think? That this, all this respect and all this, it's really for whom? Yeah. You know, it's my wit and it's my uh, uh, preaching and it's my teaching and it's, uh, you know, all these personal things. 
And before you know it, it's the, the idea that, and it can be a subtle thing in a pastor's mind, but they are there to serve me. I'm not there to serve them, right? It can be a very uh, subtle thing that can happen in a pastor's mind, and we have to guard against that always. And, of course, it's Satan who would want that to happen in a congregation, and we are but servants. Remember how Christ tried numerous times to get the same idea across to his own disciples, even on Monday, Thursday evening, taking a towel and washing their feet. Uh, it's an age-old problem, and it certainly was operating here in the Old Testament times uh, around uh, late six, or, uh, early 6th century B.C., before God's people are going to be taken uh, captive and on to Babylon. So we cannot, I mean, this is a stinging indictment against the shepherds of God's people and how they had let the people down, okay? Now, let's go on uh, and look at what we're going to actually see next week in our Old Testament lesson. And this will be, uh, as I say, immediately fulfilled and God's people coming back from their exile, God is going to step in here, literally is what he's going to say. I'm going to step in now, since the shepherds have completely let me down. I myself, notice as we read through this, how many times I and I myself will gather my sheep. Okay, starting in verse 11. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep. Notice again, it's still his sheep. And will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will deliver or rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. That phrase, clouds and thick darkness. Can you think of a time in uh, the history of God's people, it was before this, where you had big clouds. I'll give you a hint, there was a mountain involved and there was thunder and lightning. Remember any Mount Sinai? Yeah. And this, this phrase uh, that's used here, the uh, clouds and thick darkness, is used several places in the Old Testament signify not only God's presence, but also his direct involvement. And in this case, it's going to be uh, judgment and eventual deliverance. Okay? And notice again, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them, or actually you can, use, you can translate that, shepherd them into their own land. All right? So again, Immediate context fulfillment when they come back, but bigger uh, and final fulfillment when Christ will return again. Um, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. Notice again, this is what a shepherd does. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land or their pasture land. Uh, there 
They shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Do you hear in the background another psalm with which we are very familiar? 23rd Psalm, right? That the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. And the imagery is very parallel, isn't it? Lying down in green pastures, leading beside still waters. In other words, this is what a faithful and loving shepherd does for his sheep. And it's not what's been done by God's shepherds, unfortunately. They've let him down. God's going to take things into his own hands here. Okay? That's the image that you get. Verse 15, notice again, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring the strayed, and I will bind up the injured or the broken, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them injustice. You get, again, the sense here of God as the good shepherd doing all of this for his people. And again, Jesus comes to this earth and says he has come to do what? To seek and to save that which was lost, his lost sheep. He has come to gather them. He has come to be their good shepherd. And again, we can hear echoes of John chapter 10, right? I am the good shepherd. I'm not the hired hand who leaves the flock in distress. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And then later on in that, that same chapter uh, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. God himself, in Jesus Christ, comes to gather his sheep. And he does that by laying down his life for them on the cross, taking our place on the cross. And just as surely as he came the first time, he will come again. That's our focal point mostly for today. He will come again and gather his sheep together once again. And we're going to get that imagery especially in the gospel lesson in Matthew 25. All right? Going on, uh, verse 20, Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean. Now, what do we, what do we think this is? A fat sheep and lean sheep? Who would the fat sheep be? One, ones who haven't been to Weight Watchers yet. The fat sheep would be what? The... They're, they're the ones that are exploiting. They, they would not only be the, the, the fat shepherds, and is the, obviously this isn't a way of speaking here, but the ones that have exploited the others. The lean sheep would be the ones who have been exploited. Uh, the downcast, the downtrodden. It was not only the shepherds that were exploiting and abusing the, the poor and the needy. It was one, uh, just the common people as well. Uh, exploiting the needy, uh, uh, you know, prospering off of those who had misfortune. And God says he's going to come, and he's going to judge between them, okay? So it will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. 
because you push with the side and the shoulder and thrust all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Well, boy, that's kind of interesting imagery. So you get the fat sheep coming in. You can almost imagine a feeding trough or a watering trough there. And again, this is a way of speaking, a way of picturing this. What, what do the fat ones, the, the, the exploiters, what do they do with their shoulders and their horns to the, to the weak or exploited? Push them aside. Push them aside so that they don't get it. They don't get uh, water or get food. That's, again, a, a way of looking at it uh, if you're looking at sheep and goats, which we're going to see in the, in the gospel lesson. So just an image there once again that they are pushing aside, uh, exploiting those who are, are poor and needy. And notice verse 22 I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep. And here comes a big verse. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Notice in verse 22, a big shift. I'm sorry, verse 23. Talking about one shepherd, my servant David. And notice how he. So the pronouns that we change here from I to he. Now, who is this one shepherd who is called David here. David has already been long gone, by this time historically, long gone. This one shepherd, David, who is going to come and feed his sheep and be their shepherd, one shepherd over all of them, Christ. Yes, who comes from the house and lineage of David. He is the one who is going to come, and God is going to set up to be the shepherd for his people. Okay? So this is a message of hope and restoration for God's people who are going to be uh, in captivity in Babylon. They are going to come back to Jerusalem. In fact, Cyrus is going to be, he's mentioned in Jeremiah as being uh, a shepherd for God's people, mentioned by name. And so they will come back. God will, will keep that promise immediately for them. But then there's a much greater, especially when we get in verses 23 and following, a much greater fulfillment when the ultimate shepherd comes, God himself comes in Jesus Christ to gather his sheep. And again, he will come again in glory to judge between the living and the dead, as we confess. And that will be the ultimate gathering together of all of his sheep on that day. Okay? All right, we're going to go to the gospel lesson next, but let me stop here for a moment. Any comments, questions? Nancy? Okay, well, the lost sheep in the Old Testament times would be people that are taken out of the Jewish world and sent to Right. In today's time, how would you define the Okay, good question. The question was, in Bible times, the lost sheep would be considered God's people who were scattered and, and in the uh, takeover by first Assyria, then Babylon, especially Babylon in this case. Uh, who, are the, who are the lost sheep today? Okay, the, the lost sheep today, first of all, let's, let's start with the easy one. The found sheep, the sheep are the faithful, right? 
who, whom God, as, as Pastor Thompson uh, proclaimed this morning, God prepares for that last day, right? The lost sheep are those who what? Are still, Jesus says, I have other sheep who are not in my fold at this point, right? It's, it's those who are outside of faith in Jesus Christ, outside of God's offer uh, freely to them of righteousness, forgiveness, and everlasting life. Yeah. Okay, uh, in the back, Jan. Yeah, uh, the question was, the lost sheep are unbelievers, but the fat and the lean sheep are in the flock. Yes, in, uh, back to this lesson, the fat sheep are the ones who considered themselves, at least, to be within the flock. But they are, you know, uh, rightly speaking, uh, exploiting God's people, using, again, using their, their office or their position to exploit God's people, and uh, scattering the sheep instead of what they should be doing. Yes, Scott? Yes, great comment that the forceful use of I and I myself repeatedly through here is great comfort to us, isn't it? It's not, it, it, we're not left up to the devices of the shepherds. God himself is taking control here. And when we think of ultimately on that last day, um, what a comfort it is that even as we are here as his sheep today, again, it's God is still in control. He is still the one feeding and leading his sheep, okay? And God himself has already done so much for us through his son, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, uh, and, and is still feeding and leading us all the way to that ultimate gathering. But yeah, that's a great comfort for us that God himself is, is taking things into his own hands and ultimately did in Christ. So yes, absolutely. Any other comments? All right, let's move on to the gospel lesson. We'll, we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, but I want to make sure that we get the gospel lesson in. I'll be preaching on this next Sunday, and uh, this is the great judgment scene, the separation of the sheep and the goats, uh, in Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 31. Now, um, a little, uh, I guess you would say, uh, maybe a comment up front. Um, the scripture passage from Hebrews 11, without what it is impossible to please God. If this were a confirmation test, and I left a fill in the blank. Without blank, it is impossible to please God. Without faith. Without faith. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let's keep that in mind as we look through these verses and the separation of the sheep and the goats. It's going to become clear to us that the sheep are not sheep because of the good things that they've done. They're already addressed as sheep, and they are already told by Christ to come and inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for them since the foundation of the world. They, the sheep, are the ones whom God, strictly by grace, even before the foundation of the world, chose, elected to be his people, to be his sheep. The goats, on the other hand, are addressed as goats, not because of the things they haven't done. They're already goats when Christ appears. So we want to steer away from any understanding that 
Uh, you know, you get into heaven and you become a sheep if you go and visit those who are in prison, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and so on. That's how you get to be one of God's sheep. That would be a misreading of this parable, all right? And we're going to see that as we go through. Let's read the whole parable through and then go back. And I, so I want to get the full sense of it. Then we'll go back and kind of take it apart. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king shall say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And again, just a caveat. Notice there, the righteous into eternal life. How are we made righteous in God's sight? Through the things that we do? No. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, God pronounces us righteous. So again, we want to keep this in mind as we go through. Going back to verse 31, Christ came the first time in what we might call the humblest of circumstances, right? Born uh, an infant, born in a sort of a, a backwater uh, town to uh, sort of unknown people. What's the sense when he comes the next time that you see in verse 31? He comes how? In his glory. No more hidden glory. No more uh, setting aside divine glory and divine power in any stretch. It's, notice he comes in his glory. All the angels with him sit on his glorious throne. This is going to be in, in, uh, in the sense that the first coming was in such humility. This one is going to be in complete and utter glory and power and might. Okay? Now, who's going who's to appear before him? 
all nations. There's no, you know, uh, taking a rain check. Uh, got uh, other things on my calendar. Uh, all nations will appear. All peoples. Can you imagine that? Now, that's not just all the people that are alive right now on the face of the earth. It's all people who have ever lived. Okay? Will appear before him. And he will... Notice there's, there's only two things you can be on that day. You can either be a sheep or a goat. There's no other option. Just like the last verse... There's only two things that happen. You either go into the everlasting fire or you go into the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the earth. There's no other option. You're either one or the other. And notice, they're already sheep when he comes and they're already goats when he comes, aren't there? When, when is our eternal fate, uh, if you want to use that term, uh, let's say our eternal destination, maybe that's a better term to use. When is our eternal destination finalized in that sense for any person? When is, uh, let me put it this way. When is the last chance someone has to go from one to the other? At the, well, right, well, right as we draw our last breath, right, right before we die. There is no crossing over, no switching over. No going from being a goat to being a sheep, so to speak, to use this imagery, after the point of death. And so what we're really seeing here is the ultimate revelation now of everything. The things that are hidden right now, everything is laid bare on that day, including Christ in all of his glory, all who are sheep and all who are goats. And the great separation takes place. I hope there might be some surprises on that day. I hope there might be some, some sheep that look at that and say, hmm, didn't expect that. That's great. All glory be to God, right? But on that day, everything is revealed. Everything is made known. And notice again, they are separated right when he comes. And just as... When a shepherd would come, when a caretaker would come to a watering hole with sheep and goats, he's calling, Jesus is calling on a common thing that would happen in that day. Why do you think you would move the goats away from the sheep? What would the goats tend to do, do you think? Yeah, they, they tend to yeah, push, push all the sheep out of the way and, and go for the food themselves, go for the water themselves, just like we saw in, in Ezekiel. And so this is something uh, people would have seen in Bible times, and Jesus is, is taking advantage of that image here to teach us about what's going to happen on that day. All right? Now, some, l let me jump down to verse 40. And verse 40, uh, to some interpreters, would say that Jesus here is talking about people who have helped other Christians. You see in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you have done it unto me. And there's nothing wrong at all with that interpretation. It fits into the parable. In other words, God's fellow, fellow Christians have helped their brothers and sisters in Christ. When would a brother or sister at that time in particular have been in prison? 
when they were persecuted for the faith, right? Uh, and, and that word that um, is, see in verse, at the end of verse 35, where you welcomed me, that's a word that back in those times had a particular emphasis upon taking in your brother or sister, welcoming them into your home, okay? And so again, we think of missionaries uh, at that time. So God's people would do this. And let's, the big question now, again, this is not the reason that they are sheep. But what would we call all of these things that they have done? They have taken in the stranger and welcomed them. They have visited them in prison. They have fed them when they were naked or needed clothing. I'm sorry, fed them when they were hungry, clothed them when they needed clothing or were naked. Yeah, if you're naked, the feeding is nice, but not your immediate need. Uh, what would we call all of those things? Fruits of the faith, exactly. They are the evidence of a faith that exists. The faith that has made them sheep in the first place, okay? Uh, I've used this before. Uh, an apple tree. Does an apple tree produce apples so that it can become an apple tree? No. It does it because it what? It is an apple tree. It's what an apple tree does. An apple tree doesn't produce pears. It produces apples. Same thing here. This is simply what Christians do. And this is evidence of a faith and trust in Christ that is already existent when Christ returns, okay? He separates the sheep and the goats on the day he returns. And the sheep, because they only have good things, good works in the sight of God, those who are, uh, come from and originate in faith in Jesus Christ, there are only good things that Christ will say about us on that day. On the other hand, without faith in Jesus Christ, you are not righteous. And sin after sin after sin is enumerated. There are no, there are no righteous works to be quoted. And again, that is simply evidence of what is missing or what is lacking at that point, okay? Um, now, with that interpretation that I gave you, that it's only to other Christians, I don't think we have to say that it is only to other Christians. Do we, let, let's just take us, take, talk about us here at St. Paul's. When we are going to want to help the poor, let's just say, do we say, oh, you know, I wonder if they're Christians or not. Is that, is that a question that we run through? No, not at all. It's, again, simply what we do as Christians. And think of how Christ reached out to those who, as he walked this earth, reached out to those who the, the religious aristocracy of the day said, oh, no, they don't belong. You can't, you can't, Jesus even eats with them, okay? Now, one other thing. And uh, there's a professor at uh, Concordia Seminary, Joel Bierman, uh, teaches doctrine or systematic theology there, brought this out. Um, isn't it interesting that what Christ quotes here when he comes back, 
He doesn't quote big, astounding things that God's people have done. What does he quote? You fed somebody, you gave somebody some clothing, you welcomed somebody. When you, on, on the big scale of things, rather insignificant, we might think, right? And notice there that there is no task too small or too insignificant that doesn't please our shepherd. And I think that gives us maybe a little different perspective day to day as we live our lives. Just doing the very ordinary, seemingly ordinary things that we do as God's people. And we might not think much of it. It's just what I do. You know, uh, a mother who changes the diaper, or a father who changes the diaper too, we can have fathers changing diapers, uh, or, you know, feeding a, a child, helping someone who is ill, maybe taking over a meal. Yeah, on the big scale of things, that's a, a relatively small thing. But again, look at what is quoted by Christ when he comes back. The small, seemingly small, insignificant sorts of things. And so I hope that that, that gives us maybe a little different perspective. And so the, the point is that all we need to be doing as God's people is being God's people right up until that final day. And we just do these things, maybe not necessarily thinking about it very deeply. It's just, for, for some, it's almost a reflex action. And I've mentioned this before, one of the things that uh, pastors in particular have the opportunity to see that maybe a lot of the rest of you don't is people that very quietly behind the scenes uh, reach out and help other people. They don't do it to get their name in the bulletin or to, you know, have an announcement made or have a plaque somewhere. It's all done very quietly behind the scenes. In fact, sometimes we hardly find out about it until after the fact. And again, it's so great to see that uh, as a pastor. We have that that vantage point that sees that happening and we hear about it. And again, it's God's sheep being God's sheep. That's, that's all it is. So just as we heard in the, in the sermon today, it is God who prepares us for that marriage feast. Well, now we shift metaphors. It's, it's God who has already made us sheep, hasn't he, in our baptism. And he, as our shepherd, keeps us as his sheep until that last day when he comes and takes us, finally gathers us as his people. Okay? All right, let me stop there. We're going to go on to 1 Corinthians 15, but let me stop and see if there are any questions, comments. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, okay. Right. Uh, the question was, uh, yeah, we talked about, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago or a week ago. Uh, on that last day, are we going to... I think the question a couple of weeks ago was, are we going to see those who are cast into the lake of burning fire and outer darkness and so on? Um, and my answer, at least to that, was I don't know of any passage that says that we are going to see that or witness that. It's interesting, the, the order that it's given here is, notice first he turns to the righteous and says, come inherit the kingdom. Then it's those who are left behind. Uh, bad choice of words. Those who are those who are the goats. Let me let me say it that way. Those are the goats. 
Uh, I don't want to get into another problem here. Uh, then um, into, the, into the lake of, of burning fire. And again, we thought about, boy, how hard that's going to be if we were to witness it on that day. And so again, I don't have a direct passage I can point to, but one thing I would point to is the order that this is done in. You know, it's, it's not that the wicked go first and then the righteous, it's the other way around. The righteous seem to go first. Okay? Oh, okay, what about somebody who's not? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good, you know, what about, uh, gee, where's Joe? You know, uh, uh, thought he was going to be here. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I don't have an answer for that. I, I do hope that, as I say, I, I hope and pray that there are going to be a lot of uh, very good and joy-filled surprises on that day. People who, you know, drawing their last breath, uh, confess Christ, um, and, and are included in that, in that great gathering on that day for Christ. Yes, Nancy? I think Right. But it's Right. That's a very good point. The point was remembering all the people who are not Christians who do wonderful things. That's a great point. Uh, can non-Christians do wonderful things in this world, uh, helping people and furthering uh, people in all sorts of things? Absolutely. And it's not that we are critical of that or call that a bad thing. And, and Luther referred to that as a civic kind of righteousness that is evident to all people, and they certainly receive their praise and, and honor for doing that. But is that, does that help them at all in what we might call the vertical righteousness with God, before God? Miles? Yeah. Okay, so a couple, let's wrap up the first one first. Uh, the answer, of course, is no, that these good things that people do in the sight of others, well, perfectly fine. And again, it's not that we say, oh, it's terrible that they gave a million dollars to help an orphanage somewhere. But on the other hand, we better not be depending on that to make us a sheep on the last day. We, are, again, are pronounced righteous by God. There's that vertical righteousness with God that is a gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are pronounced that right instantly at baptism uh, for most of us here, I'm sure. And then there's another righteousness for Christians as I live out my faith in, the, in this world, you know, as a father, a husband, a mother, a daughter, a student, uh, whatever our, you know, our, our Monday through Friday uh, vocation is at work in so many different ways, I, I simply live that out. And that's what, what Jesus is citing the evidence here of. But again, for a non-Christian that can do great things in the sight of the world, again, that's great, but that is not going to make them a sheep on the last day. All right? And Miles, I think it's a good point as well. There, you see many people today who are, unfortunately, trusting in those other things, right? that on the last day, something along the lines of, well, you know, I've done a lot of good in this world, and I think on the last day, you know, God's going to kind of give me a pass, or, you know, I'll, 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 be, I'll be okay on the last day. And, again, uh, that is simply not scriptural. It is not scriptural. All right? Was there no Yes, go ahead. 
Correct. Yes, uh, the last... Uh, yeah, the question is the last verse, going into eternal... going away into eternal punishment. And um, the, the whole idea that is is hell. Uh, we don't have a lot of details. It's described as a burning or a fire in the scriptures, unending though. Uh, we, uh, people will be able, will, will wish or desire that it could stop, and it won't. But, yes. The question was, are the majority of people going to go into, if you look at verse 41, this is another example of the uh, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And yes, we would have to say there is no, no salvation outside of faith in Jesus Christ. And that the majority of people, even as they walk this earth today, about two-thirds of them, uh, roughly, are rejecting God's offer of forgiveness and eternal life. And notice there, the kingdom that the sheep go into has been prepared before the foundation of the world. Not so with the eternal fire. Take a look at it in verse 41, at the end of verse 41. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. So it was prepared, we think, after, not from the foundation of the world, for the devil and his angels. It was not God's original plan. Now through foreknowledge, yes. And it, we're really getting out to the, the end of what we can uh, comprehend when it comes to God and all of the foreknowledge and so on. But it was God's original plan from the foundation of the world that his sheep, all people originally, would have gone into this kingdom prepared for them since the foundation of the world. When sin enters the world through Satan and Adam and Eve, uh, then, unfortunately, death and its resultant condemnation spread to all people as well. God offers, uh, graciously offers, a way to that kingdom that's been prepared for them, for all of us, through Christ. And rejecting that, rejecting God's offer, uh, yes? Yeah, God has foreknowledge, but again, we're getting into the very limits of, of what we can understand here with regard to God. But God certainly, it's not that God didn't know or doesn't have the foreknowledge. That's correct. All right, 1 Corinthians 15. Very quickly, the, uh, we normally hear this around Easter time, and the sort of the crux here was people were believing in Christ's resurrection from the dead, that he rose, but they're denying a resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection for themselves or for people, okay? And the sort of the key verse here is 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, it's actually verse 12. Let's quickly go to that. We're running out of time here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, where Paul writes, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And there's the problem. They're saying Christ is raised from the dead, but at the same time, out of the other side of the mouth, they're saying, oh, but there's no resurrection of the dead for anybody else. And Paul is pointing out here the inconsistency of that. In other words, how can you say Christ is raised from the dead, 
and then turn around and say there is no resurrection of the dead. So quickly, let's uh, go through this. We're about out of time. But in fact, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits, that's an agricultural term, obviously. It was the first of the harvest that came in, and it was dedicated to God back in Old Testament times. But what's the understanding? You've got the first fruits that comes, and you dedicate that to God as you know, acknowledging that he is the giver of this. But what else is there yet to come? The whole rest of the harvest is yet to come. So Christ is raised from the dead. He is the first fruits, right? He is the first bodily resurrected one. And there's an entire remaining harvest yet to come. So verse 21, for as by a man came death, who's the man by whom death came into the world? Adam, all right? Adam is the one who th death came through. I always point out, though, who ate first, but that's right. Uh, by a man, who's the man who uh, came the, through whom came the resurrection of the dead? Christ. So we have Adam and Christ contrasted here. Adam brings sin and death. Christ brings life, resurrection, forgiveness, eternal life. Uh, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And that's not just soul. That's body and soul, bodily resurrection. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, or the, the final goal, the final finish line. When he delivers the kingdom, or the reigning, to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign, God must reign, until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, I want to just say one thing here. Um, death has been conquered, hasn't it, through Christ and his resurrection. But we still live with death taking our loved ones from us causing that separation for a time between us and them. But on that last day, death itself will finally be destroyed. It's the last enemy here that, that Paul cites in 1 Corinthians 15. And unfortunately, we still live with it. Even though Christ has conquered it for us, we still experience it uh, in, in a temporal way here on this earth. But notice there, it will be nullified. It will be destroyed on that day. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things. In other words, he didn't subject Christ and the Father didn't subject one another. Um, verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. Uh, just a comment here that uh, being subjected, Christ is subjected to the Father or submits to the will of the Father. That is the same word that is used in Ephesians 5 where it says, Wives, submit or be subject to your husbands. And we always have to go through a big explanation of what that means. And it, it doesn't mean inferiority. It doesn't imply one is superior. 
The Father and the Son are co-equal in terms of the triune God, but it is voluntarily placing yourself in service to someone else, for us, in service to someone else, okay? And so usually, again, uh, before a wedding, we have to go through a big explanation of that. Uh, and then notice there, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all, okay? So for next week, all three lessons pointing us to the return of Christ, the triumphant return, the ultimate gathering of all his sheep, and we look forward, just as the, the church year winds to an end, we look forward to that day when all history will wind to an end and finally will be in the, in the kingdom prepared for us since the foundation of the earth. And it's all God's doing. All right, with that, let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.